our fourth and final paper before Andrew Goddard's response uh, is by Dr. Catherine Sider Hamilton. Uh, I got to know her first sort of remotely in the back of this hall, I think, actually for this. Uh, she's a student here. At, uh, she was a student, did her doctorate in New Testament here at Wycliffe in 2003, uh, and it will appear in a year or so. Uh, with Cambridge University Press, the title is The Death of Jesus in Matthew, Innocent Blood and the End of Exile. I also know um, Catherine as an associate priest at St. Matthew's First Avenue uh, in, in Riverdale uh, and know her to be musical uh, in her talents. Uh, there was a public of, uh, sort of, the church's doors are always open to the public, but there was a time where we were to make them obviously open, and there were two violins, and she began playing impromptu duets uh, with her son. Uh, so there's, an amu there's a musical ability here, which, uh, which I often hear in her sermons, uh, a love of music, a love of the saints, and a love of John Donne, which I heard, I think, last Sunday on a certain, uh, I don't know that it was expressly quoted, but I heard some sort of trope about the ooze of oil crushed. Uh, and, and somehow that came out as if, uh, as if she'd been working on this paper um, in some way. So I look ver forward very much to, uh, to hearing what she says about John Donne in connection to the reading of Paul, an Anglican vision of the church. Please join me in welcoming her. It's a pleasure to be speaking to you here um, at an event that I think is really important and I have enjoyed through the years very much and found very rich. Uh, when Ephraim asked me if I'd considered doing this and maybe with an Anglican focus, I happened to be reading John Donne for a little piece I was doing for the Wycliffe's little paper, Morning Star. And so I, I was fascinated by what he, what I think he says about Christ and about communion, and I thought, perfect opportunity to think about it more. And uh, a few weeks later, I was thinking, what have I done? <laughs> With a pun that he would appreciate. <laughs> um, so this is just to say I'm very much at the beginning of thinking about Dunn. I think he's a rich resource for reading not just Paul, but the scriptures in general. But we don't want to be here for a year, so we're going to limit it to some of his poems and to Paul today. And I'm looking forward to your comments um, as uh, we think about this together. I'm just starting with Galatians 1, uh, a phrase I think you'll all recognize if you know Greek, there it is. If you don't, it's Galatians 1:15. God was pleased to reveal his son, Enemoi, in or to me. Morna Hooker, who is Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Cambridge, and um, well worth reading on Paul in particular. If you haven't read her, I, I really highly recommend her. Morna Hooker offers this translation of Galatians 1, 15 to 16. God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Many translators here read to me thinking Hooker suggests of Acts 9 and the uh, two other occurrences in Acts where a light and voice reveal Christ to Paul. Hooker, however, insists on in. Here is the letters and Paul's whole point. For Paul, she says, trusting Christ means that he himself lives no longer, 
but Christ lives in him and is revealed in him. Paul proclaims the gospel, therefore, not only in his words, but in his life, even in his body. Christ in me. This is for Hooker at the beginning of the 21st century, the heart of Paul's gospel. At the beginning of the 17th century, John Donne, I believe, reads Paul in a similar way. Christ in me, written on the human heart, stands, I'm going to try to show today, at the center of Dunn's faith. It is, moreover, a reading of Paul that structures the poet's work and yields not only a moving portrait of individual faith, but a rich vision of what it means in the light of Christ to be the church. For Dunn, as for Paul, it's finally a vision of communion, a communion that is longed for, offered, grasped and not grasped, the communion with God in Christ that begins in each human heart and reaches in the same Christ toward the communion of all believers, a communion, again, that seems in done to be there and not there. I'll start by tracing Dunn's reading of Paul in Holy Sonnet 1, Holy Sonnet 1 in the 1633 editions on your first page, and then in the first sonnet cycle more broadly, with attention in particular to the theme of Christ in me. I'll look then at the anguish that problematizes the presence of Christ in the Holy Sonnets, and finally I'll consider the implications of Dunn's reading of Paul, this communion nailed to the heart in Christ, for his understanding of the church. First, Christ in me. Holy Sonnet 1. I am thy son, made with thyself to shine, thy servant, whose pains thou hast still repaid, thy sheep, thine image, and till I betrayed myself, a temple of thy spirit divine. In this first holy sonnet, Dunn draws repeatedly on Paul. In line eight, uh, myself a temple of thy spirit divine, Dunn echoes 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit in you? Hearing Paul in this line, we are alerted to possible echoes of Paul in the preceding lines. Dunn's images, son, servant, image, temple, are common biblical images. Dunn uses them, however, in such a way as to recall Paul in particular. I am thy son, made with thyself to shine. To shine with the light of God himself, this is a Pauline theme. It brings to a radiant close Paul's great discourse on the new covenant in Christ in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for the God who said, out of darkness light will shine, has shined in our hearts for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In our hearts, the light of God's glory has shined, Paul says. I, Dunn says, am made with thyself to shine. God's glory has shined in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ, 
falls down. Mark in my heart, O soul, where thou dost dwell, the picture of Christ crucified, the poet says in Holy Sonnet 9. And in Holy Sonnet 1, thy blood bought us, Dunn says. We are made with thyself to shine. Thy blood with Christ we shine. For done as for Paul, the face of Jesus Christ, is written on our hearts. With Christ we shine. But there is more. It's not just that the light with which we are made to shine is Christ. It is that Christ himself shines in us. In this, too, Dunn reads Paul. You are a letter of Christ, Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3. You are a letter of Christ prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of fleshly hearts. In Holy Sonnet 9, Dunn finds Christ written on our hearts. Mark in my heart, O soul, where thou dost dwell, the picture of Christ crucified. Dunn describes in his holy sonnets an intimate, even organic, relationship between the human person and Christ. Thou art red with sin, the poet says to his soul. Wash thee in Christ's blood, which hath this might, that being red, it dyes red souls to white. That's Holy Sonnet 2. This might be simply a metaphor for the righteousness that is imputed to the human person in the death of Christ. But Dunn goes beyond metaphor. This is in the um, poem, The Cross, which is very long, so I haven't, um, I haven't re reproduced it for you, but you can Google it when you get home, The Cross. As perchance carvers do not faces make, but that away which hid them there do take. Let cross earth, so, take what hid Christ in thee, and be his image, or not is, but he. So as Michelangelo, um, who lived not that long before Dunn was born, uncovers in a block of marble, the face that is within it. So let your suffering, that cross ungrudged, done calls affliction, carve away what has covered Christ over in you. For when that cross ungrudged unto you sticks, then you are to yourself a crucifix. Then it's not only the image of Christ that is revealed in you, but Christ himself, be his image, or not his, but he. That we bear, not only his image, but Christ himself in some way, is an idea that Dunn finds in Paul. At a baptism, Dunn takes as his text Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have clothed yourselves in Christ. 
We do put on Christ, Dunn says, if we be baptized into him. And then he expands upon this. Putting on Christ makes us, he says, first, semen dei, the seed of God. And we are translated even into the nature of God. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's from one of Dunn's sermons. To put on Christ is to find our sins covered quite concretely. Christ is a garment that covers us entirely. Another sermon, to put on Christ covers us all over, even from the sight of God himself, so that how narrowly soever God search into us, he sees nothing but the whiteness of his son's innocency and the redness of his son's blood. Indeed, if we put on Christ as a garment, not only in baptism, but in the life that we then live, a life which serves Christ, Dunn says, we shall grow up to that perfection as that we shall put on him, his person. Then Dunn says, we shall so appear before the Father as that he shall take us for his own Christ. We shall bear his name and person. We shall bear his person. What begins in baptism, Dunn is suggesting, is not just forgiveness and adoption, the washing clean of our sins and our souls by Christ's blood so that we may stand as God's children, but also a movement toward communion. Christ's innocence shining in our souls. Christ's blood superimposed on our red and murderous flesh. Dunn's really big on our red and murderous flesh. Ourselves, body and soul, clothed all over in Christ. Dunn finds in Galatians 3.27, Christ in me. Not just justification, but communion. The human persons sharing in the life of Christ. And then, so it's interesting then to note the way in which the words of Dunn's first holy sonnet, if you go back to that, refer equally to the poet and to Christ. I am thy son, says the speaker. But who is God's son? It is the poet, but it is also, of course, of course, the Christ. Paul, the servant of Jesus the Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God concerning his son, Romans 1. I am thine image, the poet says, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4 sounds in our ears. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The poet is the son, and the son is Christ. The poet is the image, and the image is Christ. I am made, Dunn says, with thyself to shine. This is not a figure. This is, for Dunn reading Paul, a description of reality, of physical reality in the wake of the blood of Christ. Mark in my heart, O soul, the picture of Christ crucified. For we do not proclaim ourselves, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, but Christ Jesus our Lord. 
for the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ shines in Paul's heart. Christ is revealed, Morna Hooker argues, not just to Paul, but in Paul. Paul, who loves God and is called by God, is conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 28 to 29, and it is in Paul's own body, in his life, that Christ is proclaimed. Dunn reads Paul in this way. Christ is very near us, not just on our lips, but in our hearts, for Paul and for Dunn. The redemption that is ours in Christ goes deep in Dunn's vision. It is not just legal, but ontological. It goes to the root of our being. I live no longer, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. I am thy son, Dunn says, made with thyself to shine. Dunn gives us redemption as communion after the manner of Paul. Christ in me. However, part two, the devil doth usurp. At the very moment, however, when the poem reaches this fullness of the vision of redemption, the human being shining not just with the light of Christ, but with Christ himself, the human heart, the dwelling place of thy spirit divine, at the moment of this communion falls the shadow. Till I betrayed myself in the first holy sonnet. Betrayal hangs on the end of line seven, interrupting the pion to communion, introducing unease. All is not well, even in the world of God's redeeming. Satan prowls about, ready to pounce in the very next line. Why doth the devil then usurp in me? What does this presence of evil, this ongoing experience of sin, oh my black soul, as Dunn puts it in Holy Sonnet 2, mean for the people made with thyself to shine, the people whom thy blood hath bought? In a sonnet that's placed in the 1635 edition at the head of the whole Holy Sonnet cycle, uh, and it's um, on top of page four in your uh, handout, Dunn writes, Thou hast made me, and shall thy work decay? Repair me now, for now mine end doth haste. I run to death, and death meets me as fast, and all my pleasures are like yesterday. I, I keep wondering, did the Beatles read Dunn? But surely not. <laughs> and all my pleasures are like yesterday. I dare not move my dim eyes anyway. Despair behind and death before doth cast such terror, and my feebled flesh doth waste by sin in it, which it towards hell doth weigh. Thou hast made me, Dunn says, as he has said in Holy Sonnet 1. But here there is no soul shining with Christ. Here there is only death before and despair behind. If it is restoration Dunn finds in 2 Corinthians and in Christ, 
Why then the anguish that runs all the way through the holy sonnets? Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. This is on page three. I, like an usurped town to another due, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. In this, too, Dunn sounds like Paul. Paul, Romans 7. I know not what I do, for I do not do what I want, but what I hate, this I do. For I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I rejoice in the law of God in my inner man, but I see another law in my members warring with the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin. There's a long scholarly debate about whether Paul here speaks of his life before Christ or of his present life in Christ. Um, and it's not unimportant, although in the presence of Christ, of Paul's passion in these lines, one is tempted to say, let it be both. Um, but the point, for our purposes, is that Dunn hears Paul speaking in the present tense. Even now, when Christ has been revealed in him, Paul can say, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want is what I do. I am taken captive, Paul says. Who will deliver me? I am like a usurped town, the poet cried. Reason your viceroy in me, me should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. In my inner man, Paul says, I rejoice in the law of God, but I see another law in my members warring with the law of my mind. Reason in me is captive and proves weak or untrue. Dunn's body, like Paul's, as Dunn reads Paul, is a battleground. Sin wars in him against God's victory, and the mind that knows God's good is helpless on its own to win the battle. You've heard that I like music, uh, so I discovered, I actually was singing in a wonderful concert series at St. Michael's, which you should all attend if you can. It's on Monday nights about three times a year, and it's tied to the liturgical year. So this was a concert for St. Michael and All Angels, and it's free, St. Basil's Church. Um, and at it, um, there was this song sung, and I thought, that's done. So I discovered that it's on YouTube. In the, in the 17th century, a man named Pelham Humphreys set to music this poem of Dunn's called Hymn to God the Father. So just listen to the first verse of it now.
This is on page four of your handout. In nearly every sonnet, Dunn is haunted by the sin that is his. It's the whole subject of this lyrical hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which is my sin, though it were done before? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Here's the fear that haunts the poet, and expressed, and this is one of the things that makes Dunn so brilliant, expressed in a witty play on words, when thou hast done, thou hast not done the man, for my sins are more. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Where then is the poet's hope? Yet dearly I love you, and would be loved fain. Holy Sonnet 10. Holy Sonnet 10 ends like Romans 7 with a cry and the turn to Christ. I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Talaiporosegoanthropos, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will save me? And in the same breath, the answer, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The two stand back to back in Paul. I, wretched man, caught in sin and the body of this death, and the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Swear by thyself, the poet prays to God the Father in the hymn, that at my death thy sun shall shine as it shines now, and heretofore, and having done that, thou hast done, done. I have no more. Swear that at my death thy son, son, shall shine. I am thy son, made with thyself to shine. God in Christ, Christ in us, is for done as for Paul, the one who saves from the power of sin and death. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. I don't know if I have time to say this. I want to just point out that this is the intimacy of sexual union in which Dunn echoes his own love poetry, begging God now to ravish him as he desired to ravish his reluctant lover. Uh, think of the poem, The Flea. Um, and even in this poem, when Dunn is sending up, um, marriage. It's union that Dunn envisions. Mark but this flea and mark in this, how little that which thou deniest me is. It sucked me first and now sucks thee, and in this flea our two bloods mingled be. This flea is you and I, and this our marriage bed and marriage temple is. The point is that the send-up depends on the depth of the vision forced into the body of the flea. 
Love is union, quite concretely, one blood made of two. Marriage is communion. In the lover's mingled blood, we are met and cloistered in these walls of living jet. When Dunn turns to divine love, he describes it in the same way in terms of concrete union. Take me to you, imprison me. Dunn seeks again those walls of living jet. For I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Dunn is singing in the divine poems a love song. Yet dearly I love thee. Dunn would be Christ's bride, would belong to God alone. The problem, the sin that usurps God's right in him, Satan, the old enemy, is the problem of a false betrothal. I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Interestingly, this is Paul's language too in Romans 7. As a wife is bound by the law to her husband while he is alive, if he dies, she is free. So my brothers and sisters, Paul says in Romans 7, 4, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to the one who was raised from the dead, so that you might bear fruit for God. The slippage in Paul's logic in this passage is not the point here. What matters is the legal context in which Paul sets the cry to God for deliverance that follows in Romans 7 to, 7 to 25. What matters is the figure of marriage that introduces the whole passage, because this is the way Dunn frames the sequence of the 1633 sonnet. The first one begins with legal language. As due by many titles, I resign myself to thee, O God. And the last sonnet, number 12, ends with legal language. This lamb hath made two wills. Wills and titles frame the sonnet's central question. And that question is this. To whom does Dunn's heart belong? First, I was made by thee and for thee, the poet begins. Why doth the devil then usurp in me? Why doth he steal, nay, ravish, that's thy right? This is the story of a betrothal the man who would be the bride of Christ. The poet begs Christ to rise and fight for the one who loves him. Or I shall soon despair when I see that thou lovest mankind well, yet wilt not choose me. And Satan hates me, yet is loath to lose me. The holy sonnets are the love song of the poet to his God after the manner of Romans 7, as Dunn reads it, in the tension of already and not yet. Batter my heart, the poet begs his three-personed God. Accomplish in me the salvation that is my inheritance. Restore in me the image that is mine in creation and now again in Christ. For Dunn, the final word, the final will, is love. God's pledge to his betrothed is fulfilled in Christ's all-healing grace. And the song of the turtle is heard again in the land. It is with this word that the sonnet cycle ends in Holy Sonnet 12.
I, can't, I don't have time to read it, so I'll let you read it. The, thy last command is all but love. Oh, let that last will stand. Dunn's first holy sonnet cycle thus traces the tension. Between betrothal and betrayal, the human being made to shine with Christ himself, and oh, my black soul, despair behind and death ahead. I am a little world made cunningly of elements and an angelic sprite. But black sin hath betrayed to endless night my world's both parts, and oh, both parts must die. How do these two parts of Dunn's vision hold together in the logic of the poems, in the logic of salvation? Do they hold together? How can it be that the soul who is God's image, who is God's son, who is bought with Christ's blood, in whom Christ lives. How can it be that this soul for the whole course of the poems is in anguish precisely for its separation from the love of God in Christ? Dunn creates in his holy sonnets, not unlike Paul in Romans 7, a tension that finds no easy resolution. Rather, Dunn points us to the cross. The tension of the sonnet, sorrow and joy together, speaks to the shape of Christ's presence with us. For in this time, in which we have been bought by Christ's blood and made thus with himself to shine, it is Christ crucified that we chiefly know. Christ is foredone, nailed to the heart. O be thou nailed unto my heart, the poet writes in a litany, found on page five. O be thou nailed unto my heart and crucified again. It is the crucified Christ who is saving, and it is the crucified Christ we know in this time. This time of the poet's anguish is the time which Paul also described, the time of the birth pang the time of already and not yet. For we know that all creation groans together and cries out in birth pangs even to this moment. And we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves also groan together as we await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Paul in Romans 8. Christ has died for us, Dunn would say with Paul. By his blood we are saved, and we are still in the process of dying with him. O be thou nailed unto my heart, and crucified again. Part not from it, though it from thee would part. Dunn's logic is the logic of Paul in Romans. We live in Christ, Christ lives in us, and we still groan as we await our adoption. You must go Job's way to Christ's end, Dunn says in an early sermon. Job hath beaten a path for us to show us all the way, a path that affliction walked in and seemed to delight in. Because it is in affliction that we put on Christ. God-given corrections, Dunn says, Conform one to Christ. There's this wonderful passage in the second volume of sermons, page 300. 
Um, and I'll read a little bit of it so you get the gist. So when my cross I have carried up to my Savior's cross, I put my hands into his hands and hang upon his nails. I put mine eyes upon his and wash off all my former unchaste looks and receive a sovereign tincture, a lively verdure, a new life into my dead tears from his tears. I put my mouth upon his mouth and it is I that say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it is I that recover again and say, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Thus my afflictions are truly a cross, when those afflictions do truly crucify me, and supple me, and mellow me, and knead me, and roll me out to a conformity with Christ. It is in the cross that the communion offered in Christ is known. This is, of course, Paul's theme too. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I live no longer, but Christ lives in me. Precisely as the crucified one, Christ lives in Paul. Having sung in Philippians 2 the story of Christ's self-emptying even unto death, death on the cross, Paul describes in the very next chapter the shape of his own life. Whatever was gained to me, this I have counted for Christ's sake as loss. Indeed, I count all things loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have suffered the loss of all things. In order to um, gain Christ and be found in him, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings being changed into the form of his death. This is Dunn's theme. It is Paul's theme. To shine with Christ is to bear the crucified Christ in the heart. And he says that our sorrow for our sins is our sacrifice, our sharing in the life of the one who was crucified for us. Repentance then, is the necessary shape of the new life in the crucified Christ. O God, O of thine only worthy blood, and my tears make a heavenly Lethean blood, and drown in it my sin's black memory. Dunn's grief in the Holy Sonnets is bound up with the cross of Christ. Far from indicating a separation from Christ, however, grief is the sign of Christ's saving presence. Christ's blood and the poet's tears commingle in a mutual movement of mercy and repentance. Christ's blood is poured out even in Dunn's heart, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul, the poet cries. And he answers in an image of Christ making his heart tender, the blood of Christ, tenderizing his heart like a slab of meat, Dunn describes the believer's relationship with Christ in terms of an intimacy that is real, of the body as well as of the soul, but an intimacy that has the shape of the cross. It is in the intimacy of the affliction which drives us to repentance, which drives us back upon the crucified Christ, that we become one with him. Um, and I'll refer you to Litany 3, where there's a vivid depiction of becoming one 
with the triune God in repentance. Flesh in this poem is a glass lantern out of which shines the flame of the presence of the three-personed God. The flame of the crucified Christ burns in the flesh of the poet. In his tears is repentance, in his suffering, until fire and sacrifice, priest and altar, are the same. Dunn longs for the union of lover and beloved. His anguish is his love song, his prayer to God, my God, from the soul on Good Friday riding westward. In Christ crucified, Dunn finds God's answer. God speaks in Christ crucified his own and eternal love. Christ is God's epithalamion, the marriage song of the Lamb. I will, um, I'm going to skip over the next part, but simply to summarize it by saying that it is in the worship of the church that Dunn finds, has made available um, to him this idea of communion with Christ um, in a concrete way. In baptism, we're buried with Christ in his death in holy communion, in which Dunn says we are drowned in his blood, Dunn finds the essential shape of the world. And he sees in the Eucharist the birth of Christ, he says, in your particular souls. Just as Christ appeared to Simeon on Christmas Day, uh, on the um, Epiphany, as um, essentially bodily, presentially, personally, so in the Eucharist, we have another manifestation and application of Christ to ourselves. The contemplation, uh, he talks about the soul being assimilated to God uh, in a process of digestion as meat is assimilated into the body. And he says the content, and that's a simile. Um, we're made with one with Christ as food is assimilated into the body. So he's not Dunn is explicitly not interested in a rigorously literal understanding of the nature of the presence of Christ in the sacraments. Nevertheless, the simile describes a real assimilation in some way, even a transmutation into, uh, into him. And it's a simile made available to him in the weekly celebrations of the Eucharist. Think of the prayer at the end of the Eucharist. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. The words envision a mutual and concrete communion that Dunn took seriously, Christ in me. For Dunn, the idea of communion with Christ has necessary implications for the church, and I'll end with this. Burn me, O Lord, he says, with a fiery zeal, quoting John, of thee and thy house, which doth in eating heal. Burn me like Christ with a fiery zeal of thee and thy house. Dunn's vision of Communion with the crucified Christ is finally a vision for the church. Just as the individual believer 
is united with Christ in his death and in his life. So all who share in Christ's body and blood are one body with him. Another Pauline um, idea. The church is Catholic, universal, Gunn says, and so are all her actions. All that she does belongs to all. When she baptizes a child, that action concerns me, for that child is thereby connected to that head, which is my head too, and engrafted into that body whereof I am a member. Unity is the nature of the church because each believer is engrafted into the body of Christ, because Christ is carved into his heart, because I live no longer, but Christ lives in me. What then of the divisions of the church? Dunn himself lived in a day when division was rife, and the divisions of the church affected his own life deeply. He was, after all, born a Roman Catholic at a time when Catholicism was illegal. Sir Thomas More was one of his ancestors. His brother Henry died at age 20 in Newgate Jail. He'd been thrown in prison for harboring a Roman Catholic priest, and the young priest himself was executed rather horribly. Dunn's, uh, anyway, most of his relatives ran into trouble with the law in some way or another. Uh, he knew about the divisions of the church. Um, all his life, Dunn practiced a reasonableness, a generosity toward members of other churches and a refusal to condemn that biographers generally attribute to his desire to save his own skin and his sympathy for the church of his birth. This may be so. A pragmatic streak runs deep in Dunn, and in this also perhaps he is a good Anglican. But there is more than this. At its heart, Dunn's position is born neither of compassion nor of pragmatism. It is born of faith, founded in Christ and the communion known in him, the communion in Christ's body that is for Dunn the fruit of God, Christ's redemptive work and the meaning of salvation. If we have all put on the one Christ in baptism, then there is a unity in Christ that is prior and true, even in spite of division in things that do not touch the root of Christ. It is possible, he says, to depart from the root of Christ, and this happens, interestingly, for Dunn, through small changes in the outward forms of worship, um, which become so corrosive as to pierce the skin itself, that is, the integrity of faith. Um, it is possible to depart from the root of Christ, but this is, he judges, in his own time, not yet. Though we branch out east and west, that church concurs with us in the root and sucks her vegetation from one and the same ground, Christ Jesus. Though Don refuses to condemn, nevertheless he grieves, for the divisions of the church diminish the name of Christ. He regrets the fact, in a passage that recalls Paul in 1 Corinthians, that we abandon the one name of Christ to call us from the names of people, papists or Lutherans or Calvinists, we depart from the true glory and serenity, from the luster and splendor of this sun. Division contradicts the name of Christ, for Christ is one, the anointed, a sweet ointment poured out over the whole church so that we are called Christians. 
we are all washed in the one sweet ointment of Christ. Insofar as we are Roman and Anglican and Calvinist, we do violence to this anointing. And the slaughter that the churches practice upon one another in Dung's day is the outworking of the violence their divisions have already done to the body of Christ. I'm going to stop here, but to say simply that Dunn will neither condemn the churches of others nor call his own church the only true. This is not because he seeks to be inclusive. In its acceptance of division as normative, inclusiveness would, I think, be anathema to him. There is no big tent in his imagining, but only the one body of Christ. Dunn will not condemn the churches of others nor call his, own, his church only true because he knows that Christ's church is one. And so he waits. He waits in sorrow for the failure of the church to be Christ's body. Show me, dear Christ, your spouse. And he waits in hope. Because, he says, the community of believers, however imperfectly, is in Christ all of a knot, such a knot as nothing shall untie. And this truth will, in the end, be seen. Um, this is the faith that sustains me when I lose by the death of others or when I suffer by living in misery myself. But the dead and we are now all in one church and at the resurrection shall be all in one choir.